I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today, we're going to be talking to Abby Phillip, CNN senior political correspondent and the new anchor of Inside Politics Sunday on CNN. She started covering the Trump administration for CNN in 2017. She's a White House correspondent through 19. She moderated CNN's Democratic debate in Iowa, and she anchored special coverage on election night. She's been reporting live for so many of the momentous moments we've witnessed in this country in the last few months, the election, the attack on the Capitol, the murder at the Capitol, Biden's inauguration. But let's get right to it and bring Abby in. Abby Phillip, thank you so much for joining us on Battleground. Great to have you, Abby. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Abby, when you think about from the 6th of January through the inauguration, what are your impressions, you, your first draft of history, so to speak? Watching what happened unfold was a really horrific thing to see as someone, you know, think of myself as a patriotic person. And I, and a, as a resident of Washington, D.C., it was horrifying to watch. But I also think that immediately you have to make a decision about what just happened there. It's a moment that requires either moral clarity or you could be part of the problem. Because I don't think there's really much of an in-between in that situation. I think this is one of those periods of time in American history where there is right and there is wrong. And what I fear the most as we move forward is that there's going to be this almost lost cause narrative that comes out of this period of time where you're going to have a whole swath of the country that is being taught in their schools that what happened on January 6th wasn't what happened and that there was some justification for what transpired and that maybe these people were right to believe that there was fraud and that warranted trying to take their country back in the same way there's almost like a Southern myth about what the Civil War was really about. And I, I, I worry about that as I sit here and I see the revisionist history being told by members of Congress on Capitol Hill, the kind of walking back of, you know, minority leader Kevin McCarthy about the responsibility for what happened and where it lies. What happened on January 6th was not about partisanship. It was about what's right and what's wrong. It was about democracy versus the alternative, which I think we all don't want. And I hope that when I'm telling my kids about this, I hope that it's clear to them the way that it is clear to us two weeks later that what happened was an inflection point in our history in the same way that maybe Selma was. And it's a moment for people to stand up for what's right and what's wrong. And we cannot let that history be erased. And I think there's a real risk of that um, because there's so many people in positions of power who are willing to say, well, this wouldn't have happened if there wasn't fraud in the election. There was not widespread fraud in the election. And, and I think there are too many people out there pushing that narrative and it's threatening to become something that maybe we lose control of if we don't push back on it pretty aggressively from the standpoint of moral clarity and also just factual accuracy. You talk about, you know, a moment of moral clarity, and I think this is an issue that demands clarity from a frame and a reference point about the world, right? To be able to distinguish reality from alternate reality. So I just want to ask a question directly. Do you believe that there's an autocratic movement 
that's alive and well in the United States of America? I, it's tough. I, you know, I think really deep down, yes, <laughs> I do. I'm thinking about these Michigan militias. I think about the cult of personality that was awakened by Trump. What underlies that is this is something that I think is profoundly anti-democratic in its nature, which is that I think in America, there's always been this sense that our system is more important than any person. And the problem with the kind of Trump cult of personality has been that he's chipped away at that. And it's become more about him and less about democracy, less about the country and about our traditions and our values globally. And, and I think that is so deeply ingrained in Trumpism and now the Republican Party that I don't know how the Republican Party separates itself from that. And I already see signs that they're not willing to because of the extraordinary lengths that they're going to try to shield Trump from accountability for January 6th. There are a lot of Americans out there who love Trump, Trump more than they love, you know, democracy, our democratic process, our history. And that is a disturbing and real thing. I think those people are also the ones who are the most prone to want to use the sort of language of the Second Amendment and, and militias as a ruse for wanting to undermine the government. And I think there are people who are strong supporters of the Second Amendment, and they have every right to be, but can make a distinction between doing that and using the Second Amendment as a ruse for undermining the government itself. And Trump, you know, covered him for four years. He is someone who doesn't understand the history of this country, and he doesn't understand or maybe doesn't care about what the line is between autocracy and democracy. Um, and you see it not just in his own actions, but in the way that he endorses anti-democratic practices around the world. And that's part of Trumpism. And now it's part of Republicanism, unfortunately. And I do think that's a growing problem. I think underlying these autocratic games and strategy, one of the tactics is race. Yeah. And you see most of the insurrectionists, most of them now just want to move on as if we were having a debate about tax rates. <laughs> and they kind of want to forget that they aided and abetted the falling of our United States Capitol and an attempt to overturn an election. But you see they're real uncomfortable when questions around mm -hmm. race are brought up. And I'm just curious, Abby, as you think about the history of this and the coverage that you'll be bringing forth in the months and years ahead. I mean, it is remarkable that this entire thing was based on, it was only the votes essentially of black voters yeah. in certain states and certain cities. To me, even if we have full accountability around people's actions on January 6th, leading up to that, leading out of that, here we are in 2020. And you have most of one political party suggesting that an election was illegitimate because a lot of black voters yeah. voted. So just speak to how you think about that from a journalistic standpoint, because to me, that point has not received enough attention and the culprits have not received enough punishment 
for that being the core underlying story they were telling. What's so dangerous about this whole conspiracy theory that was pushed by Trump, and there's been some great reporting from Axios about the premeditated nature of the lie, the way in which Trump went into the election, knowing that what he was going to try to do was say, if I don't win, we have to say that there was massive fraud. And then what they did was Because there were so many places in which he had to try to invalidate the results, what they effectively said was the results of the election in places where it was predominantly or majority Black were on their face invalid because those places are incapable of running fair elections because of corruption, quote unquote corruption. Basically, the rationale was Detroit and Philadelphia and Fulton County, their elections are by definition fraudulent. What kind of insane argument is that to make in the United States of America? And yeah, it is about race. This president has for many years pushed um, this racist idea that Black jurisdictions are filthy, rodent-infested, that they're inherently corrupt, that they are inherently less deserving of federal attention or aid. And he says that it's because they're run by Democrats, but they all are places that are also where Black people live and where Brown people live. And that is not just about this election. He did it with John Lewis's congressional district. And Yes, it is about race. When you really think about it, it also makes it easier to explain why so many people who have white supremacist, white nationalist ideologies and sympathies were so eager to believe it. They were eager to believe that this was true because they believe that if this is an urban place where Black people live, of course there's fraud. Of course they're cheating. Of course they're doing things that are wrong. And that has been obvious from the beginning. You don't need to be like a philosopher or sociologist to figure that out. You just need to look at the facts that are in front of you and these paper-thin legal filings and affidavits, and you'll see that there's no rationale for why it's Detroit and not some other part of Michigan, why it's Philadelphia and not some other conservative county in Pennsylvania, that they're concerned about these votes. So one of the big concerns that I have going forward, and and one of the things that I'm sort of, as a reporter, obsessed with sort of keeping tabs on, because I think it's going to be so important, is the way in which this situation is going to precipitate a crackdown on voting across the country, but particularly in red states directed at communities of color. And I think that we are in this sort of like post-reconstruction period kind of like for our country where like, you know, there's going to be a backlash. The idea of trying to find unity is going to be a ruse for election commissions, so to speak, that are really directed at rolling back changes that are made to make it easier for people to vote. Because... The consensus that I think a lot of Republicans came to that President Trump believed was that 
there's no way for Republicans to win if so many people are allowed to vote and are allowed to vote easily. I personally think that is a very flawed idea. I think Trump actually proved that you can get Republicans out to vote. You just have to get more of them than Democrats. (laughs) But I think it's about to have a really powerful grip on the Republican Party in a mainstream way, where they're going to start to say, yeah, he's right. We have to make sure that some of these rules get rolled back as quickly as possible, because then we'll never win a national election again. And that is going to happen. And I think that that needs to be called out for what it is, because it would be one thing if there was actual proof of fraud, but there's not. So the rationale just is not there. I mean, what's remarkable hearing you say that, you know, you'd hear Trump when he's like, I need the suburban women to love me. And at the end, he got really concerned about seniors. And I think why is... He couldn't believe that he'd lose more white votes than he thought. Like about two thirds of the electorate in this last election based on exit polls was white. He won that by about 17 points. I believe Trump and many of his enablers in Congress believe that that is the electorate that matters. It's like I won in a landslide because I won white voters by a huge margin. And I think we have to understand that that is driving so much of that. When they think about the election and whose votes are legitimate or not. You know, they would give white voters 100 percent and they probably go back to three fifths for black and brown voters. Now, listen, my view on the politics of this is I agree with you. During a pandemic with a faltering economy, Trump came pretty close to winning reelection because he got really good turnout. What's crazy about all this fraud stuff, too, is, as you know, in Pennsylvania, he actually improved his margin in Philadelphia. Yeah. It was the suburban areas and some of the exurban areas where he got hurt. So he shows a pathway that if Republicans could get 15 to 18% of the vote in some of these minority areas, George Bush did exceedingly well, as Steve knows firsthand, with a Hispanic vote back in 04. Um, you know, that's a recipe for winning. But that is what's driving so much of this. When he says he won a landslide, yeah, part of that's a device for the steal. But it's also he thinks he did, if you can get in that tortured adult brain, because he won white voters. Battleground is going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Abby Phillip. Welcome back to Battleground. We're here with CNN's Abby Phillip. I think it's important what Abby said before, right? This point of like moral clarity. There's been an absence of moral clarity in the country. And I don't say that from a preening and preaching perspective, but The ability to discern what is in front of your face and what is a threat to the values that we are all supposed to be unified in believing in as superior to all of their other alternatives, right? And so when you're looking at that crowd, and we've talked about this, even 25 years ago, societally, we would have looked at these people and said they're losers. And what makes them losers isn't how much money they make, or any type of class association or snobbery. It's their sense of entitlement and grievance, the expectation that they're deserved something for doing nothing. It's the chip on their shoulder. Everyone is to blame for their lot in life except for them. And those people, this collection of white supremacists, white nationalists, violent fascist proud boys, neo-Nazis, insane people, conspiracy theorists, these people are always present at the core of a cult of personality in an autocratic movement. 
But that's not enough to make this go. You need the cynical elites, right? The people who think cynically like Holly and Cruz that you can use those people. You can manipulate those people. I mean, there's no group of people in all the world that Josh Hawley has more contempt for than those people outside. Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz are trying to ride the tiger, fueled by a cynicism that is thermonuclear, right? The cynicism of the elites in combination with the menace of violence in the service of a charismatic leader and a cult of personality, financed transactionally by the biggest companies in the land, propagandized by an assortment of liars for profit who over this last period poisoned American democracy and left as Trump's legacy, a real deal autocratic movement in this country that's supported by 40% of the country that has to, by its definitional strategic objectives, become a racist white party aimed at discarding the votes of blacks in America who they look at as voting too much and in too great percentages for the Democratic candidates. It's an autocratic movement because they're trying to take votes away from people who have them and got them through blood sacrifices and unbelievable levels of coverage. And so it's important to understand the danger of what we face and what we're looking at, and it's not wiped away by the transition of power. It is a dangerous cancer that's been let loose in this country. What I think is, just to add to all of that, one of the features of the Trump era is that none of it makes any sense. Trump is not the type to actually apply logic to his lies, frankly. And so, so David, like you pointed out, in Philadelphia, he did better among Black voters in Philadelphia in 2020 than he did in 2016. If you look at Florida, Florida is a state where they have very robust mail-in voting. He did very well with Hispanic voters in that state. In Texas, along the border, did well with Hispanic voters. So. It is not actually, in fact, logical that it makes sense to try to depress the vote of Black and Hispanic people in this country in order for Republicans to win. But that is a feature of the lie that Trump has created that everybody is just endorsing for all the reasons that Steve just described. And it underlies for me what is the other big problem with this you know, movement that we are living through, which is that People are willing to believe anything, literally anything, and not apply any sort of logical or factual filter to it. And elites, like like Steve said, like the Cruises and Hollies of the world, are willing to back that up for their own purposes. But what is really scary is that it doesn't really matter what the lie is. They'll believe it. And that puts us in a totally different place as a country. Trump could say the sky is brown and there would be people who would believe that. Truly, it's a real problem. And I think that's what makes it so dangerous. You know, this election fraud lie was so obviously untrue, but it could have been anything that he told his supporters and held rallies about. And you would have seen 
dozens of members of Congress backing it up and people donating millions and millions of dollars to give it fuel and fire. And, you know, that's the cult of personality, maybe the autocratic streak that you were asking me about. So, you know, this issue around disinformation, and obviously it's turbocharged now with Fox and Breitbart and Sinclair, the Epoch Times, Prager University, all these organs, mainly on the right. And obviously you and your network get attacked as fake news and CNN plays it down the middle. It must seem like sometimes you're playing a really lopsided game in terms of just bringing facts to people. And I'm wondering how much does the fact that you know there's going to be disinformation and a ton of it around whatever issue you're covering, how does that, if all, impact the way you think about putting together stories and maybe sticking with stories longer because you know that it's going to take more effort to penetrate those that will listen to facts? I mean, listen, there's always been misinformation, but never something like this where it can go around the world in a second, really, with a keystroke. And when you have a charismatic autocratic leader like Trump leading it, it just makes it stickier. But I'm just curious as a journalist, your observations of that and how things need to change at all in terms of your coverage of facts, given that disinformation pipeline that's only getting stronger. I think it's only getting stronger. I don't see any evidence that this is going to get better anytime soon. Yeah, I I don't think it's getting better. (laughs) In fact, you know, one of the major pushers of disinformation is Fox News, and they are doubling down on the lies. And I think that that's going to continue and accelerate, in fact, in the coming months and, and years of the Biden era. But you're right. I mean, I think that we, yeah, we're spending more time on the same ideas. And we're, I think we're having to really show people exactly what is going on. And, and I think we can do a better job of this. People need to see the proof of what we're talking about. And it can come in a lot of forms, whether it's putting people's, you know, kind of tail of the tape, what you said yesterday versus what you said today, and constantly presenting that so that it doesn't get forgotten, but also just the facts of the situation, especially when it came to voting in this last election and showing people that there was no basis for this stuff, you know? But even all of that, I mean, the truth is, it's not enough. That's the truth. People are not who believe this in this disinformation are not tuning into CNN. Right. Honestly, they're listening to Alex Jones and Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and whoever. I don't even know who some of the these news sources are. I mean, I have friends who have family members who have gone down a disinformation hole, who've become effectively radicalized in this era. And the way that that happens is that they start to consume all of their information from underground sources, from the places where they think they're not being influenced by the quote-unquote mainstream media. Those are places we don't even have on our radar because they're so kind of deep in the weeds. And so, you know, yeah, I, I think we have a lot of responsibility on our platform to tell the truth and to show people why the truth is the truth. But I also don't think that that's going to solve the problem. I think there's an ecosystem of disinformation out there. The most mainstream form of it is Fox News, but the ecosystem goes way deeper than that. And people who are really living in this stuff 
are steeped in that disinformation and we're not getting to them. It's not penetrating to them. They're not following me on Twitter. <laughs> They're following other people. And I don't think I have a solution to that. I don't think anybody in the quote unquote mainstream media has a solution to that. We can only do what we can do on our platforms. But what I really think it comes down to is that there are people in power who have been nurturing lies of varying degrees. The biggest one was about the election, but there are all kinds of different lies that they've been nurturing over the years. And either they need to walk away from those lies or there needs to be leadership among the people who have the ability to do things like this to say, you don't belong here, okay? Like QAnon is not part of this political party. And that has not happened. That is the failure that is going on right now. It is not the case that people who know better have stood up and said, we're going to draw four corners of what this political party is, and it does not include the fringe. Nobody has done that. And until that happens, these really fringe media sources are always going to have the support tacitly or even explicitly of people in a major political party. And that is going to be a real problem. It's going to feed this fringe element that is threatening to destroy the country. Absolutely. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to Battleground. We will, maybe not as quickly as we'd like, I hope we do, we will get on the other side of this pandemic. I think the big open question is this one. If two years from now, three years from now, all the insiders have gotten away with it and we kind of move on. And in the rearview mirror, it looks like a political squabble more than an attempt to overthrow the government. I'm not sure we ever recover from that. And I wonder, as I look at what transpired, so let's say Trump had won Pennsylvania, 20 electoral votes back to him. Let's say Trump had won Georgia, 16 back to him. So if it had really come down to an Arizona where it was 5,000 votes, Wisconsin, 10,000 votes, I'm not sure he wouldn't have been successful in holding on to power. Hmm. I'm not so sure Mike Pence, and ultimately, I think the courts would have rejected this. So I'm not saying Trump would have necessarily won, but I think the attempt would have been more serious. I think there would have been 200 Republicans in the House, and I think there would have been 30 Republicans in the Senate who would have said, yeah, Biden won narrowly. He won a state by 5,000 votes, 10,000 votes. We're going to throw it out. And that's what scares me because we know there's going to be an election in our not too distant future that is that close. And what happens then? And if there's not full accountability for what just happened, then the next coup will be successful. So I don't know, like, as you think about covering this and the chess moves that will happen down the road, how much that factors into what you're thinking. Well, what happens if the House of Representatives were led by Republicans? I mean, I think that that's the other thing that could have easily changed how this all went down. So yeah, we came very close to a really catastrophic situation. And I would argue that the situation that we did experience was pretty catastrophic. So again, this is why this is not a Republican-Democratic food fight. It's not. It's something completely, completely different. And attempts to frame this as a partisan thing, to use an overused term, it's gaslighting, but it's dangerous. And it needs to be, I think people need to be, reporters need to be clear about it and unafraid about it. And it's not just something to move on from. It's been 200 years 
since what happened at the Capitol has ever happened. And it's never happened at the hands of our own people. We can't just move on. And I think that that is, for however long that it needs to be brought up, it needs to continue to be brought up. Because I don't actually have any faith that the incitors are really going to be held accountable. And so they'll be with us for some time. Enemies foreign and domestic. And for the first time, that last term was at play. Well, Abby, thank you so much for your time today. That was great. Thank you. Could listen to you all day. And I can't wait to read your book. It's about Jesse Jackson's 1988 presidential race. The 88? It's really about 84 and 88. And maybe this is the dovetail to our conversation about voting, the origins of Black political power in the sort of modern era and how he was able to harness that in the 80s. I think it has such direct relevance to what we saw in this last election where Black voters really did turn out and use their political power in profound ways, both in the primary and in the generals. I was just watching Ken Burns, if you haven't seen this, Ken Burns baseball series with my son. And in that series is a long clip of Jesse Jackson's eulogy of Jackie Robinson, Mm -hmm. which is like one of the greatest pieces of oratory you'll ever see. It's like absolutely like Jesse Jackson is in like Michael Jordan in his prime as an orator, right? He's just like, (laughs) like top form. It's an incredible thing to watch and to see. Like if you're writing that book, go find that. You go find that eulogy. It's an amazing, an amazing piece that, that just showed Jesse Jackson at that time. I, it really was. You know, Abby, not to pile on, I don't know if you've talked to John Norris yet. Do you know John? He was, he's an Iowa operative. He ended up becoming the Obama administration. He was Jesse Jackson's oh, state yeah, director yeah, yeah. in 84 yeah. and 88. And they yeah. were in Greenfield, Iowa, which is geographically super yeah. hard to get to, right? But the stories, and I, you know, I lived in Iowa, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And just the stories about what they put together out there. So yeah, we did it. Obama did it. Okay. But for Jesse Jackson to do as well as he did in Iowa. And, you know, the coalition he put together, some of the more magical political stories I've ever heard. One of the reasons I'm writing this book is because I think, because Jesse Jackson has had like 10 lives, (laughs) you know, people often forget about that part of his legacy. The fact that he, when he ran, especially in 88, he got very close to getting the Democratic nomination. And the reason for that, especially in 88, was the way that he was able to build this multiracial coalition in rural white places in Iowa, and then notably in Michigan. I think that is part of this fascinating political history that kind of gets forgotten a little bit because a lot has happened since then. And he has done a lot of other things since then, but I think it deserves to just be re-examined. So that's the goal. It still bums me out so much that Jackie Robinson was for Nixon. It really, I love, Jackie Robinson's my hero. I just, it bums me out. Like, that's the only flaw. Jackie Robinson was a Republican. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know you, yeah. Well, good luck on that, Abby. That's going to be a must, must read. Thanks for having me on. This was really, really fun. Thanks, Abby. I want to thank Abby Phillips so much for joining us. I could have had that conversation with Abby all day long, and I'm eager to see how she uh, covers the coming weeks and months. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did some great research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.